Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we're joined by Fidelity Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, and Fidelity Vice President of Digital Advocacy and Policy Communications, Greg Lohman, as the pair break down the incoming results of the midterm elections. Please note this podcast was recorded on November 9th, a day after the midterm election vote took place. Denise and Greg speak to host Pamela Ritchie about the key takeaways from the midterms and what history can tell us about the markets post-midterms. At the time of this recording, it looks like the Republicans weren't as successful as they had hoped in the election, which Greg says offers clarity for the Republicans' potential candidate lineup in 2024, especially on the Senate side. He says the electorate is more nuanced. Some blame the economy, citing inflation as one example. Denise comments on the markets pre-election and now post-midterms. She says as of now, we have a divided government. She says historically, under democratic leadership, a divided government provides higher long-term returns to the market than a democratic sweep. Today's podcast was recorded on November 9, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Greg, I'll begin with you, um, if you don't mind. First of all, what, what sort of does this mean? This is where we are. What, how would you sort of frame this? Yeah, um, I assume a number, if not all of our uh, analysts, uh, I should say panelists, audience members have opened up some digital device or the paper this morning and, and received the news that uh, the race remains tight and Republicans didn't have as good a night as uh, it was anticipated. Uh, so I don't want to repeat myself in the news you provide there, but I think, you know, ultimately we, we did receive what we think is divided government. So one body seems to be going to the other party. It's probably safe to say at this standpoint that it's the House representative. It's really just to what degree that that divided government plays out. So that's a win for the Republicans. Uh, who else is it a win for, would you say? It, it, it's clear, which again, you will you will read in the editorials in the days to come, that this was a win for, I would say, moderate, more sane, more dynamic Republican leadership uh, in the United States. And, I, and I, I put that, you know, in the context of it being not a great night for Donald Trump, um, but for Ron DeSantis in Florida. And he was really given the mantle to provide a policy message, a prescription through the party, which I think will lead for them, whether they seek to embrace it or not, more clarity in their potential roster of 2024 candidates. We're seeing basically the presidential race starting today with that clarity that that, that the voters provided as far as the candidates 
that that are that we're able to get through it, and in particular on the Senate side. That's absolutely fascinating. Okay, we'll come back to that certainly. The the, the March towards 2024, Denise. Um, markets hard to know how you would chart. What would you say sort of markets are doing pre-election and now in the aftermath? I mean, what is the sort of the market action about? Would you say? Yeah, in some ways, you know the history, and Greg, you know, hit on it in terms of okay, we have divided government now, and that was for the most part expected. I think 70% of the elections since 1980, you had some sort of transition uh, during the midterm. So that's sort of in line with history. Again, the degree can be argued. You've certainly seen the historical odds where under democratic leadership, a divided government provides better returns for the market on a go forward basis than, you know, democratic sweep. So you, you could say more or less, that's a little positive for the market. I know people who have been listening have seen the, the data on the one year post midterms being the, it's been called the sweet spot for the market. It's the highest odds of a market advance during any of those four years in the four year presidential cycle. Um, and it has the narrowest returns and the most minimum loss. I mean, they're all sort of related. And I think that the reason behind that is something that might not be related to the midterms, but it's usually the midterms are an uncertain time around policy. And it has been to some extent, but really that boost you see in market returns post the midterms is really all an effect of that starting point of high uncertainty and that decline to a lower uncertainty environment, meaning that there has been some clarity provided. Now, there has been some clarity provided by the midterm, so we could say that that's a potential boost, but I think most investors feel like the more important driver around here might be the Fed and inflation. And I would say one step further than that, much like not, not what will happen might actually um, um, determine sort of the outcome for the market, but what is discounted in the market being the ultimate driver. Interesting. Okay, and, and I'll put this question to you, Denise, in a minute, and uh, because it's sort of the pushback, Greg, you know, so this is what's happened. How, how is the atmosphere, how is the economy, how is the world, the United States, um, different this time? This is always the question. We always think we live in such original times. I mean, do we, in fact, what is different this time about the overall environment? in which this election is taking place. Yeah, I, I mean, I think from the perspective of, um, you know, where history was trying to be applied to the present day, um, you know, the, the polling and the prognostication once again showed that it was a little off. And I think that the electorate, as we saw and, and continue to see in these results, is a lot more nuanced. Um, what was interesting is typically, as you can remember from the 90s with the, the Bill Clinton campaign uh, campaign chiefs, they would, they would say, it's the economy, stupid. And right. in this case, we all thought that, right? It, rising inflation, tremendous uh, advantage going into the election from independents favoring the economy as their biggest concern and favoring Republicans by wide majorities to deal with that problem. Yet in the exit polls just coming out, we're seeing Actually, some of those independents favored the Democrats of the economy. Maybe their vote was more nuanced around some of the social issues we saw. Certainly abortion and other factors played into it. Again, candidate quality. I mean, there's, there could be a hall of fame for this issue um, when it comes to how primaries, unfortunately, can become so partisan that they drive these candidates that don't win over independents and moderate voters. We're seeing that. Um, you know, you, you go back to Christine O'Donnell from, you know, the, the 2010 era in Delaware, if you remember. I'm not a witch. 
I mean, these are just not good candidates for the, the upper chamber of United States Congress. It may resonate this time, it may not. Right. So what, so what ultimately do you think the Democrats do with this? I mean, or what, what if they were going to follow, you know, a good set of now we do one, two, threes, what, what might be at the top of their list, do you think? Well, well, they're very limited from the perspective of, of legislation. And I think to Denise's point, the market has baked in a lack of, of fiscal response going forward. Whether the Democrats cleaned the table last night and retained and grew their control, there, there wasn't going to be any more big stimulus fiscal policymaking just because of how prolific the last two years have been. Four trillion dollars in COVID funds out the door. Um, chip manufacturing, infrastructure and jobs act, inflation reduction act. So now we have divided government with Republicans potentially in control of the house, certainly no more fiscal policy. There may be some bright spots of retirement reform legislation that gets enacted into law, but certainly for the Democrats, it goes to the regulatory conversation, what they can get through in the next two years through that agenda, you know, the pen and the paper and the phone, as Obama used to say, what you can push through basically unilaterally. They're going to face court challenges there. The Supreme Court's been very hard on regulatory agencies that move outside the scope of laws and just make up policy as it relates to their party's agenda. So that's going to be challenging for them. It's also very institutional. I don't know how often that can trickle down into asset markets so quickly, but that's really what the Democrats are going to be focused on. I'll just leave, I'll say um, before shifting back over to the markets, the Democrats have to be very careful too. I don't think this was, you know, for them, maybe as good a night as they may perceive it to be. In fact, for Republicans, you could argue it provided them a lot of clarity leading into what I call the World Series, the next presidential election. It's a spring training for them. They now have a clear perception of what their roster may be going into that presidential election. They've got the messaging pulpit with the committee gavels in the House where they can issue out their proposals and see what works. And Democrats have to be careful that they don't take this complacency and have to figure out their own leadership issues as well. So, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm cognizant of that aspect, too. So interesting. OK, the leadership will be the next the next topic. Denise, what is different? You've laid out what history shows us. Third year of a presidential term uh, generally is the best part of that for the markets. But what is different this time? I mean, there's, it, it appears there's a lot different. Yeah, and so in some ways it's it's never the same. But you know, I use history as a guide, and we talk about his, history all the time. But one of the ways I don't use history is analogs, partly because analogs don't work. I will just echo one thing that Craig said, you know, earlier in terms of you know it's the economy, stupid. It has been a, a, certainly a poor economy in the sense that real income growth has been negative. I think for the better part of a year and a half. But it's interesting relative to the 1990s, which is, I think, when that quote came due. Greg will correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. But really, we had a true recession where jobs were at risk and where the unemployment rate had risen dramatically. And I think that that is a little bit of a difference that you're seeing this time around, which might have moderated the, the red wave expectation is as bad as things are. Most Americans who want a job are still gainfully employed, and that is dramatically different than most recessions historically. But let's get to the real critical difference that I think is the market driver. It's the underlying rate of inflation. And I think that that is not only in some ways a driver for the swing that we saw during the midterms, given the fact that we've seen such 
uh, impulsive government spending, which was what made the recession of COVID very, very different in terms of the emergence from that. If you sort of go back to 2009 and we think about, okay, well, we had fiscal and monetary stimulus in 2009. Uh, really, we had monetary for, for sure, certainly, and that on its own didn't really generate much inflation. And fiscal was very back-end loaded and very minimal relative to coming out of the pandemic. Really, in the pandemic, we saw almost coincident fiscal stimulus. And that was what made this cycle very, very different than other cycles and was, I would call it, the primary driver of inflation. Certainly, we had supply chain disruptions. Certainly, the war in Ukraine has disrupted energy prices, but really the driver has been fiscal spending. And as much as there is a narrative in the market, I think today, that the red wave would have really kept everything in check and really made less, you know, less onerous on the Fed to raise rates to fight inflation, I think some of that's already baked in. In some ways, when you think about inflation, remember, it's a rate of change. So we've already seen the fiscal stimulus and we've already seen it roll off. If you really want to measure it yourself, just go to monetary, um, you know, uh, an M2 or some calculation of money supply on the Federal Reserve's website. And you'll see that it went from, you know, let's call it plus two or plus four to plus 45 to back down to plus one. That's really what we're talking about. In some ways, we've already moved through that. And it's just a matter of when will we see the potential deceleration in inflation? Greg, let's go to some of the themes, some of the issues, some of the discussions leading up to it. Again, where does it go? Perhaps divided, doesn't go, you've mentioned, you know, there's probably not a whole lot that will get done, but there are narratives around the environment. We've got COP27 going on right now around crypto markets. I mean, what types of pieces of discussions do you think will be either getting through or just getting louder in sort of an overall communications push now? Yeah, um, this Georgetown professor con called uh, congressional oversight, which the Republicans will have ultimately if they, they achieve even a slim majority, they will have gavels. They will have um, a control of the one body's agenda, maybe the Senate too. But let's just say, let's say hypothetically right now, put the Senate aside, the House is in Republican control. Um, they have a messaging platform. And, you know, I think what's clear is through the success in Florida of Ron DeSantis, he, I think, will be driving a lot of that policy, prescription, and messaging for the Republicans to follow. You've seen it at the state level around ESG issues, corporate, anti-corporate ideologies, as they would call them, woke ideologies that's used a lot, right? Now, I urge folks, if they want to see that blueprint for what I'm talking about, about with respect to DeSantis is just listen to his victory speech. You know, it's very clearly laid out what those messages will be. And I don't think you're going to receive policy prescriptions from Trump, right? So, you know, he's he's really right now, I think, in the driver's seat for what that message looks like. So how does that filter down into Washington in the day-to-day? -day? There'll be oversight hearings. There'll probably be oversight hearings on the more macro level issues of immigration, the border, uh, Afghanistan, how that was handled, and crime, and frankly, probably some personal stuff too, right, around uh, Hunter Biden or other issues. So how disciplined they stay in those lanes is gonna be really interesting. As we saw with the January 6th committee hearings, those were very disciplined hearings. Have they taken a page out of that book and will they actually resonate? And then I'll just say, from the you know, corporate perspective, what trickles down into finance and day-to-day 
uh, investment prohibitions and concerns there is, is a very real uh, you know, ESG conversation that's taking place in, in the United States and where states and um, other municipalities mandate prohibit any sort of boycotting of uh, fossil fuels or, or guns or, or the like. So uh, these, are, these are the corporate culture wars. That's the time we're, we're in right now. And um, I don't think that's going away just because the Democrats had, you know, an arguably better than expected night. Yeah, fascinating how all of this works. Denise, if we go to the sectors at this point, I, I think probably you always have lots of research on, on what works sort of with one's leadership or, or the other party in charge, which sectors tend to excel. And give us the overall picture right now, again, with it looks like some version of divided government. Yeah, zero. Like you, you wouldn't bet on anything regarding sectors relative to the presidential cycle, meaning that it tells you absolutely nothing statistically. All sectors have 50% odds of outperformance. I mean, it's so clustered, Pamela, you'd be surprised. Like wow. it's between 52 and 40. So there is what I would say is zero pattern recognition around what to own versus midterms. Look, and I think that that tells you in some ways what Greg and I have been talking about is that every cycle is different and it has its own drivers which may or may not come out of the political environment, but there's not a playbook that you can use relative to that. I think, and I've said this often, that as much as we think that this market is very macro driven, right? It's all about inflation. It might be about the elections. It might be about the midterms. What I see that's been a big statistical driver is the starting points on relative valuation, right? In some ways, like even where we are for the market lows, would you be surprised that the market has been flat when Fed funds terminal rate expectations have increased by 55%, right? So when you think about, well, it's all about what the Fed's going to do. Well, wait a minute. The Fed has just shifted their, their mandate, you know, up basically they were, you know, off by, you know, 50% and revised that and yet the market is flat. So what I think it all tells you is that you need to rely on more idiosyncratic signals about what the market is discounting. And in some ways, they're different every cycle. I use the same ones, you know, valuation spreads, um, which is an expression of fear. We can talk about credit spreads that have actually been declining, which tells you that maybe the market isn't concerned about solvency. Um, you know, we can talk about equity market correlations, which I think I just did in my weekly, being at high levels, like almost relative to the financial crisis, where again, when equity market correlations are high, all stocks are treated as one thing, right? Sell them all or buy them all. Right now it's been sell them all. And usually that's the point in time where you wanted to seek opportunities in the market, not be a seller with it. And I think, again, the difference this cycle is if I just had one thing to point to, even like when you look back in history, and even if you were concerned that, okay, we're going to go into a recession over the next even three to six months, right? Uh, with what we're seeing in some of the data, there might be a sharp deceleration. Over that course, you know, the six months before you start a recession, the market has usually gone down by 2%. This time it's already gone down over 25% peak to trough. So yeah. that in and of itself, I think, gives you a little bit of a signal like, wait a minute, a lot's priced in here. That's fascinating. Okay, so so let's go to sort of, Denise, I'll come to you in just a second, sort of the, the world of investment outside of the United States, either due to the election or just due to the cycle and, and perhaps where we are in it. But Greg, what do you think? What does this mean for Canada, uh, first and foremost, of course, for this? But also broadly for sort of the trade story, uh, lots of tensions when Donald Trump was in power, does that get put to the side a little bit? Can we shelve those worries? Where, where do some of the international 
discussions happen? Yeah, I think, you know, the international principles of this administration go forward. In fact, you know, arguably that's one area uh, they feel very resolute in as, as it relates to how they're approaching patching up old alliances, um, the uh, assistance in, in Ukraine, and, and keeping a watchful eye on what's happening in China. Um, there, there is, I think, probably more bipartisan fervor around, um, you know, outgoing Chinese investment uh, from the U.S. And, and and that's just building. You know, you in in the United States, there's a process called CFIUS, uh, which is um, basically a committee deciding on allowing inbound Chinese investment in the United States. I think there's going to be a lot of questions in the markets around outbound, which we're still monitoring. Um, but no, I think these elections don't <clears throat> change. If in fact, probably provide more of a you know quote unquote swagger for the administration to continue doing what executive branch officials do, really without Congress's approval. You know, one area where I, I think there's been rhetoric that may hold up further blank check aid to Ukraine. I mean, yeah, that, that seemed to come out. You know, just yeah. in recent days, it, it seemed yeah. to. And maybe surprise some people. I don't know what you. Think. Yeah, and, and you know, unclear, really, right? There's, there's, there's political rhetoric, and then there's policy realities. Um, what could play out on the, <clears throat> excuse me, the battlefield or geopolitically could change. Uh, Speaker McCarthy. I don't want to get ahead of myself. He still has to win the House and win re-election in his own party. But what could get in front of him? That's a geopolitical reality that's not facing him today. Could change that calculus. I don't know, but. That has been um, bandied about, you know, related to reducing that blank check thing around that war, and um, and you know, beyond that, uh, I, I think I think China continues to be a friction point for the administration on trade as well. I, I sorry, I didn't touch on Canada. You know, I think from the perspective of policy, public policy, even even as it relates to energy and oil and gas. Yeah, that's sort of the main I, one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, I. For, for some of the Canadian energy, um, you know, initiatives, I'm not sure that dynamic has changed as a result of the midterm elections. Arguably, the messaging is going to be um, better for that, but I don't think anyone's sitting here today saying like the Keystone pipeline's being resurrected or um, you know asset prices are impacted by by the election. But certainly, you could see probably in line with that corporate ESG fervor, right? that benefiting the, the conversation around energy, who's sort of been the, the black sheep currently. In, okay, uh, it's, it's really interesting just to sort of look around the world and so it gets all eyes, of course, have been on this election. Um, Denise, what of the international story probably more to do with the cycle? Yeah, I think it has more to do with the relative rates, right? Relative rates and relative growth drives relative performance. So the more the Fed has to do, the more the U.S. dollar seems like the currency to own, the more stocks in the U.S. have significant, more significant odds of the market advance. I would say that even X the currency, it's the relative growth differential that's going to drive the, that outperformance over the last, uh, over the next decade. And I think nothing's really changed from the midterms or even from the market the way I look at the data. I do think what's interesting, and we've talked about this a little since the Canadian audience, let's talk about energy. I mean, I, I think that my views have really shifted in terms of 
um, energy being in the sweet spot for relative outperformance. I mean, we've already seen 122% relative outperformance over the last 14 months, never been done in my database by any sector going back to 1962. So that in and of itself is almost a little bit of a, you know, take your money and run. But I think we're seeing, I'm starting to see some real disconnects um, in the odds for energy. Uh, and in some ways, it, it's despite the fact that valuation is still advantageous. You're seeing a real disconnect in terms of how much crude has come down uh, yeah. relative to how much the stocks have actually outperformed. And now I think that the risk is, as an investor, I think you're betting on the barrel. And I'm less comfortable with that because I think that, you know, we don't know how Russia-Ukraine is going to turn out. And right now I'm looking at a whole lot of global demand that's softening and potentially um, accelerating rate. So I think that the risk reward in energy from an investment perspective, despite the low levels of valuation, is actually, you know, I would say negative right now. I think that there's better sections of value to be had in investments, and I think that that's financials, and I'm going to start talking more and more about materials, uh, specifically metals and mining, and I know you all always ask me about gold. What I said about, and I do say that they're very, very correlated, what I just said for energy does not relate to gold, and I think that this is a shift of what I'm seeing in terms of the odds where energy has lower odds, but materials and gold actually have higher odds right now. That's fascinating. And, they, and they've been sort of cored um, to an extent over the last little while. Um, Greg, areas of bipartisan action happening, I mean, perhaps sort of the perennial story, but again, shifts because of this election, what, what still will there be huddles in a bipartisan way types of topics and areas will you see that? Yeah, I think it, it is important to stress that in these times. Certainly, we're in a polarized, divided world. We all know that black and white policies, whose team are you on? But I will tell you, um, in, in the industry of financial services, uh, there are a lot of arcane issues of which members come together and try and solve problems for people's real life financial security issues, uh, products we'd like to offer in the market, and they really come at them with uh, a willingness to engage with the industry on both sides and learn and come up with a policy. You know, you're seeing this in, in, in the retirement landscape, which we're fortunate to be in. It's a real bipartisan goodwill effort to improve the, you know, in, in, you know retirement gap in, in the United States, for, especially for underrepresented communities. So there's a huge piece of legislation there that you could see getting passed, even despite divided government. You know, I'll mention, of course, um, the hot topic of crypto, just the fact that uh, there is so much attention being paid to it um, will require members of Congress on both sides of the aisle to speak to one another. There's a variety of bills out there. And whether that's enacted into law is anyone's guess, but I think, you know, it's a guarantee they're going to hold hearings, they're going to meet, they're going to discuss proposals, and that could shape the future of that industry for years to come if that's ever enacted into law in future administrations or Congresses. So, you know, all these things, um, they, they, they do still talk to one another, um, maybe not on some of the more hot button issues, but certainly around financial services, very active, which, you know, Fidelity is lucky enough with the resources it has to be prepared for all scenarios and speak to both sides of the aisle, which is it's fantastic. It's great to get both of your views and to have so many people joining us here today. There are lots of other places to be looking, but it's all it's it's so important to everyone to make sure that from an investment perspective, they know what's what. Denise, we'll be following up with you, I know, on um, some discussions around materials going forward um, and ultimately what that means for investors. 
I'd uh, like to thank both of you for joining us today, Denise and Greg. I know that you have had very busy days. I think, Greg, you were running around. We were lucky to just get you in the office, but even at all today. So good luck with the rest of this unfolding, and uh, we'll see you both soon. Thank Thanks you. so much, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.